Welcome to The Best Podcast. This is Lynn Hilton here. I am very excited to welcome to the podcast today a good friend of mine who has also done The Best course and has been singing professionally for 10 years in the West End doing musical theatre, uh, Natalie Andreo, um, who who is going to talk to us about her experience and, um, and things that she's learned along the way. So Natalie uh, worked in shows such as Rock of Ages, playing the, uh, one of the lead roles as Sherry. Uh, she was Stand by Elphaba um, for Wicked. She's been in Mamma um, Mia, both the stage version and the film version. Other shows include Footloose, Fame, and also Evita, which is quite a different one to the others. So we'll talk to her about that. So welcome to the bad <laughs> so welcome to the best podcast. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm really well. How are you? Obviously, I'm not very good at getting my words together today. <laughs> That's all right. Just another coffee. It's still quite early. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've got lots to ask you and um, find out from you uh, because I know that you've been doing some really interesting work in your studio. But uh, before we head off down that track, I'd love to know... Um, a little bit about your work when you were in the West End because a lot of young musical theatre singers or young singers want to become musical theatre singers and work in the West End and, of course, you've done it. And uh, so who best to talk about it but someone who's actually been there. So was going to the West End a dream of yours right from the beginning? It wasn't actually. Um when I was very, very young, I started dancing. I'm talking like baby ballet, age three. Um, and then other things like tap and jazz sort of came in throughout my younger years and my teens. I started singing lessons when I was about 10 and acting lessons as well. But as a profession, it never really occurred to me that it was something that I could do as a job until I was about 16. Um, I remember prior to that, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Um, <laughs> so um, when I got to about 16, I remember my dance teacher at the time saying to me, oh, have you thought about auditioning for college? And I was like, no. <laughs> so I spoke to my parents about it. They suggested maybe I did my A-levels first. Um, so we did that. And then, yeah, I attended a college called London Studio Centre, which is based in London, obviously, um, uh, for three years and did their foundation degree course. Um, and that was it. The rest is history, shall we say. Mm. So did you basically go into the West End straight from college? No, my first job out of college was a pantomime up in Colchester. Um, and then I kind of made my way there. I did a European tour of fame, um, a couple of UK tours. And then the first West End job I had was Mamma Mia. Um, so that was probably about three, four years into the industry, I would say. Would you say that's a fairly normal trajectory for a musical theatre? Oh, God, that's, it's so difficult for so many people. Like some people come out of college and go straight into the West End. I know another girl in my year at college, um, she did, I don't, I don't recall her doing anything for three years till she left. And then she got a West End job in We Will Rock You um, after three years of graduation, graduating, sorry. So, and then some people don't go into the West End at all. It's, 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 obviously a very you know it's a big deal everyone wants a chance to have that opportunity um so 
yeah, it, it, it's, it's a hard one. It, not everyone has the same opportunities in that sense. Maybe your agent might not have the, the right kind of contacts or a lot of it is down to look or casting or it's, it's so specific. Um, I also think once you've kind of got your foot in the door, it's easier to stay there as it were. Um, so yeah, it's just breaking through that initial barrier. So you were in uh, Rock of Ages for two and a half years. What are the challenges of maintaining a lead role and singing and performing eight times a week? Um, Good question. Uh, The Rock of Ages role came about for me in quite a unique way. Um, I was actually cast in the show as a swing, um, which is an ensemble role that covers all of the parts essentially. Um, in the ensemble and chorus in the in the show um, and uh, it was very unfortunate that the that the lady who had been cast as the role unfortunately fell ill and I was first cover sherry um, so just towards the end of the rehearsal period I was sort of thrown on I remember I was thrown on for gala night and then had to um, and then was just ended up playing the role off the back of that she unfortunately well, she very sadly didn't um, return back to the show um so I was then given the role so I didn't have any experience of playing a lead role up until that point and it certainly came as a bit of a whirlwind um in terms of managing my voice when I was there obviously being a rock show it was pretty intense um all the usual things just making sure I was well hydrated gently warming up throughout the day Um, but at this point I have to say I was quite ignorant and I didn't train my voice as well as I should have done. Um, I had the odd occasional singing lesson, which (laughs) I look back now and I think, what was I thinking? Um, But I was just very fortunate enough that I didn't have any major trouble while I was there. It wasn't actually until the end of the the run, about two and a half years in, um, when uh, when I left the show and I was auditioning for other parts and other shows, that it became apparent that my voice was just broken. I had so much tension and I'd really, it just really highlighted the fact that I'd taken my voice for granted the whole time. Um, And it then made me realize, you know, okay, actually some formal (laughs) training throughout the whole process probably would have been advisable. (laughs) Um, So you didn't get that training then when you were at college? um, You do get it at college. It depends on what college you go to. There's there are um, a lot of musical theatre colleges that really focus on more of the singing acting side. And then there are dance colleges and maybe which you might only get a singing lesson a week um, in that singing lesson. I remember I had two, I think I had two a week at London Studio Centre, but in a group setting, we given some repertoire on the Monday and then we'd have to sing it in front of everyone on the Thursday. So we did do technique. It just wasn't, uh, obviously teaching technique to a group can be quite tricky, especially when everyone's at different stages, everyone's at different levels. So, um, yeah, I felt like that was definitely something I could have invested in from the very beginning. Obviously, now as a coach, I realise how important it is. And at the time, yeah, I would just say to everyone, don't take your voice for granted. I was very lucky to get through by the skin of my teeth. Yeah. One of the things that we talked about just before we started the um, recording was that singing for Evita versus the other shows uh, was quite, you know, different. Yeah. What were, were the differences there then? The other shows I'd done had all been jukebox or pop or rock. And then Evita came along, obviously, Andrew Lloyd Webber, very legit style. Um just something just a different a completely different thing that I did in my 
um, in, in the 10 years that I was performing. Um, and actually, because of the little sort of training I did myself when I was out of college, um, I guess I must have sounded pretty poppy and contemporary <laughs> in comparison to everyone else that was there. Uh, but um, yeah, it was just it was just really different. It was quite fascinating. All the harmonies working together in that kind of way it was it was quite different. How could you have prepared for it better then? Um, I suppose in the moment I didn't really see it as a problem, but now I look back and obviously appreciate that the styles and the genres are so so different. Um, I just think a clearer understanding, like I said, working with the coach and having a clearer understanding of what was expected from the vocal. Um, I would definitely say there was just a lot of a poppy sound in my approach. Would you maybe recommend someone goes and has lessons with a legit teacher? Absolutely. Definitely. I don't know. I don't actually know of any coaches that specify in legit, maybe more classical sounds as a coach. I think a lot of coaches in terms of musical theatre can, you know, I think it's their job and my job I find working with clients is that, you know, I teach contemporary and legit and teach is so important for a singer to be able to move across genres like that. You know, you might be called in for an audition for, you know, fame one day and then you might be in for um, We Will Rock You the next. So it's very important. Oh, no, that's not my point. Sorry, Evita the next. So you might have to change your style and your approach in within 24 hours. So mm. So what, what are some strategies that you use to help your students do that? Constantly changing what we're working on. I always want to make sure that we're approaching both sides. If a client that comes to see me is working on a legit show, I will make sure that we're doing contemporary in the studio. Um, I think an awareness of what is required from each style. So obviously the contemporary side, having more of a chess register pres uh, presence, um, more speech quality, being able to belt um, and connect with the with the audience on a on a like I said on a very speech level, legit same thing but much more legato, a feeling of flow, vibrato, um, and making sure that's accessible basically all the time for both clients, um, for both for the client. Sorry. So I heard once that um, musical theatre doesn't like vibrato. Is that true? No, I don't think that's true at all. Um, it depends on the show. Um, I would say legit, there's probably quite a lot of vibrato present. I actually have quite a lot of clients in at the moment who are going in for auditions for colleges and for the legit songs that they're having to sing in their auditions, they're quite specific about, they want it to be high. They want it to be soprano with lots of vibrato. Um, I think, you know, that in the audition process, they always want to see a contrast of songs. So the contemporary musical theatre side and then the legit and to make it as completely opposite as possible is, um, you know, really important. So, so the musical theatre singer needs to have access to both. Yes, definitely. Mm. So what exercises do you do to help somebody do that? Um, vibrato. Um, I always find that it comes most easy when things are balanced. So my first port of call will be to approach um, the extremes in the register. So to address chest and head voice, making sure that they are as balanced as possible. Um, if a client is, you know, generally in musical theatre, we want to sing in the mix. Um, and obviously, if you come lower down towards your range, <clears throat> you're going to access more of a chest register and higher the opposite. 
Um, and that mix, we want that to be as strong as possible. So by approaching each of the opposite ends of the spectrum, getting those as the best they can, you'll have a better mix. Before we go any further, how do you define mix? How do I define mix? Um, gosh, that's such a difficult question. <laughs> Everyone's so different. A mix of both registers, one that is not definite, that is not solely chest register and not one that also has a lighter, breathy, aspirate, you know, falsetto in there. It's, do you know what's really funny is a way that I'll help clients access it only most recently. I think I spoke to um, my husband, Chris, about this, Chris Johnson, about just saying to a client, it's probably the least technical note I'd ever give. Can you just not sing in your chest and not sing in your head and see what happens? And more often than not, it will just sit. But the more defined you are about, I've got chest voice, I've got head voice, it will keep it. It will keep you in that divide. It will reinforce the passaggio. So thinking of the voice as one, um, yeah, really helps. I think when and when you get that balance between the registers, you know, that's when things like tongue tension can ease, jaw tension, looking at breath, making sure the airflow is nice and efficient. Um, and that's when vibrato comes, I find most easiest. Right. So yeah, anything else you wanted to add to what you do to help people access like the exercises to access straight versus vibrato? Um, exercises specifically to help people access vibrato. Yeah. And straight. So like, are there any specific exercises you do that you find other than obviously what you just said as an instruction? Mm. How would you, what sort of exercises might you do to help them identify those differences? Okay. Again, a difficult thing because vibrato comes when it's more, it happens more often than not when everything's relaxed and when there's less tension in the body. If they're held and manipulated within the throat or the neck, it's going to hold everything together. So by freeing up the body, keeping everything um, as in physically moving, either marching on the spot or swaying from side to side, Ridiculous mm-hmm. that sound keeping the arms nice and loose, um, the abdomen nice and relaxed. Um, that definitely helps. Also, um, again, <laughs> this sounds quite funny. Uh, a way of achieving a sort of like a fake vibrato, just placing the hands just underneath the rib cage, um, the fingers even, and just if you have a sustained note, applying a repeated sort of push into the rib cage, oh, just over your stomach. <laughs> um, I wish I could demonstrate for you. As in, ah, uh, can help to achieve some sort of relaxation in the brain. Yeah, just sort of pulsing over the stomach. It's um, just as a, so they can get a feeling. If they, if they don't know what they're looking for, it's quite hard to say now go to vibrato or release or let go um, because they don't know what that feels like. So something just quite silly like that can help. Um, but yeah, it really does come when things are more relaxed, to be fair. Um, and yeah, I, can't, I, I want to reinforce when I'm talking about working on those extremes, I really try and emphasize that the chest register, you know, it is going to give you more of a contemporary sound. It is going to give you things like belt, um, you know, more, you know, emotions in terms of joy and anger and despair, all of those extremes, quite, it's quite a big dynamic if you use it in that way. But the most fundamental thing that it gives you is an efficient cord closure when it's balanced with a good efficient airflow and you get that cord closure. Then on the complete opposite side, you've got the head voice, which again gives you a completely opposite dynamic, something completely different, but that gives you the flexibility. So if that cord closure is efficient at the bottom, 
and then we can make it flexible that's when you'll find that release in the vibrato so you mentioned the word belt <laughs> that's something that everybody goes oh you have to have belt in order to be in musical theater now assuming you know mm-hmm. uh that you must have belt if you did alphabet standby and wicked um can you talk us a little bit well let's talk a little bit about what the challenges are of doing a role like alphabet um where you have to belt a lot um what what are your thoughts on that and what did you learn from doing that show um, I definitely say that performing in a role like that was a really big learning curve for me. And that up until that point, like I said before, with Rock of Ages, I'd really taken my voice for granted. Um, just before going into Wicked, I was pretty sure that I was done. Actually, I was ready to sort of take a step away and and become a vocal coach. But then the job very fortunately came along. Um, so, but I would say I wasn't sort of match fit. I wasn't ready as technically ready as I should have been or could have been. So I found in the initial parts of, well, the, when I started the contract, I found that I was getting inflamed a lot. Um, and now I look back and I, and I listen to myself sometimes and I think, was I really belting? Was it, was it really a true belt? Um, and the work I did with Chris Johnson, my coach at the time, was that it, it, I don't think I was really capable of a true belt at that point. I was capable of making a really big, loud sound, um, but there was definitely a slightly lower larynx in there because if I'd have let my larynx go up, I would have warbled all over the place. It wasn't as stable as it needed to be. My understanding and my, wasn't as clear as it should have been. Um, So, and I, at the time, the, the actress who was um, playing the role, Emma Hatton, her belt was spot on, or it still is spot on. Her voice is fantastic. So it was, it was, it's very difficult to think, well, hey, she's getting through it in that way. Why does my voice not do that? And she's <laughs> completely different, completely different people, completely different approaches and, um, you know, and, and ideas. And I remember actually not really settling into my voice as a role for about 12 months, 16 months, it kind of started to settle in. Um, a colleague of mine that I was working with on the show quite early on, she said to me, you know, you, you just need to stop thinking about it. You're thinking too much. And bless her heart, it all, obviously with all good intentions, but I needed to think about it so much. I needed to, on a technical level, to get, to get rid of all of those habits that were so unhelpful think about placing Mm. things very very you know very very carefully until it finally sort of felt like it was settling in and like I say it probably settled in after about 12 between 12 and 16 months I went okay I got this now this makes sense um uh yeah that's a tough one and and alphabet as a role she's not even speaking generally she's sort of yelling throughout the entire show she's obviously a very misunderstood angry character uh so yeah, a lot of her dialogue is is shouted, uh, and also you've got to be on things like the trapeze, the what called, you know, where you get don't, don't you have oh, to go up on the crane, flying something like that? it's a, it's What's just it a crane actually. I'm telling you all the theatre secrets. Oh. No one should know this. Uh, <laughs> don't tell anyone, Lynn, will you? It's <laughs> no, <laughs> it's a crane um, with a, a floor standing space of about a foot square 
Um, you jump oh, on okay. that. Um, you're wearing a corseted dress. The hat weighs a ton. It's got two microphones in it. And that broom is not hollow. It feels, I don't know what it's made of. It is heavy. So you're standing in a foot square. So you have to almost sing the end of Defying Gravity with your feet together, pretty much. Um, and obviously you're then 30, 35 feet in the air. Um, having already sung for about an hour and a half, it's um crazy experience. Very, very, very unusual experience, but one obviously I'll never forget. Yeah, and I'm assuming that it can go horribly wrong at, at all sorts of levels. In what sense? In that the crane doesn't... <laughs> that well, yeah, I know. Well, yes, There's that's what I'm saying. It's like obviously there's the mechanical thing, you know, staging, but then also mm. vocally. If you run... The idea is, I think, not the idea, sorry, this in the scene, in the song, just before that, um, you're singing with Glinda and then you turn and you run back towards the back of the stage to go and get into the crane. There's a little a few seconds for you to get ready onto the, onto the crane. And if there was, if the crane was ever not working, this head would poke through the curtains and go, there's no crane, <laughs> run down to the front. So we'd have to turn around and just run down to the front of the stage and sing just centre front. Um, which you'd like to think would be easier because you're not obviously, you know, suspended in the middle of the stage in the ceiling. Um, but I think that the anxiety of it anyway, and then being told you're not doing what you normally do, um, kind of isn't any easier, to be honest. It was always quite scary when that happened. So it's always thrown before, you know, thrown at you just before it happened. Um, mm. What was the other part of the question? Sorry, Lynn. Well, vocally, that things... Yeah, and, and obviously just making sure that it's all sitting right. I think the days when you have a good show, when, when you have a perfect show, they're very, very rare. Um, there's always going to be something you're fighting, i.e. stress or diet or um, air conditioning or illness, all of these things. So every show is different, every single show. I remember coming off stage one night and thinking, oh my God, that was terrible. And my mum saying, well, that was the best show I've heard. So... It, and obviously what you feel inside, the audience doesn't know that. They don't know what you're feeling. They don't know what you're experiencing. So um, it is worth just trusting that the, the quality of what you're producing, the sound of what you're producing is enough. And at the end of the day, when you're tired, when you're, when, you know, when you're on show six of eight in week 37, you're exhausted, but you've just got to do it. You know, you've got to get through it and just remember that, the audience don't know what you're feeling. They don't actually care what you're feeling. <laughs> they want to feel something. Uh, so you just have to just mm. power through. Um, yes. Yeah. So can you define, you talked earlier about the fact that you weren't sure whether you were actually belting mm. inverted compass. Um, I want yeah. to explore that term a little bit more. So certainly for myself, I often think about belt as either a technique or a vocal quality. And the way that um, I get my students to approach it's quite different, or the, or the strategies I use. So what do you do when you're working with your students and trying to build a belt into their voice? Is it something that anybody can do? Or do you think that there are only a few people who can I actually do it? I think anybody can belt. Um, and I think if you, the thing with a lot of um, training nowadays, or my experience of it, with graduates that come out of college, oh, I'm not a belter, you know, I'm a legit singer, I'm not ready to do this, I'm not ready to do that. Um, the limitations we set for ourselves or our understanding of what belt is, it's, it's seen as this inaccessible thing where actually 
I find in my teaching and what I experience myself when I do it, the healthiest, most easiest belt is when it is primal and relaxed. It's not set up. It's not squeezed or anchored or pushing against a wall or squatting, any of these things. Um, it's a natural, easy yell. So when someone comes in and they're like, oh, you know, I want to learn how to belt. And I'm like, well, you probably already can. And they're like, what? Um, so obviously we do a little bit of singing or um, just go through the number that they want to. And it will normally be a case of coming away from what we're talking about um, in terms of exercises and really randomly asking them to do something a bit out of the box. For example, um, you know, okay, imagine you're on the street in New York and you want to call out for a taxi. How would you do that? And initially they're like, what? And they kind of go, taxi. And I'm like, no, come on. <laughs> How would you do it? And then you'll get them to a point where they are taxi. I'm like, cool. Okay. What's that? Okay. Around this note and then kind of work their way up. Uh, maybe going into something like a hey or a yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of works really well just with the onset and things, but gets them to a good smiley, happy place that is as primal as possible. And they're not thinking about belt. And in the end they're around a DD flat I'm just going to scream now. Yeah. And they don't realize they're doing it. I'm like, well, that's belt. And they're going, Oh, but Oh, Oh, is it that easy? And like, yeah, it really, really is. So, uh, as I was saying, the approach in that it has to be set up, it has to be very, very specific. It has to be this, it has to be that can be quite limiting. I find. So is this, um, something that you find you're commonly working on in your studio? A lot. Yeah, it is a, a lot. Um, Again, if you have had classical training or legit training up until this point, yeah, it's probably going to be harder. But normally, or usually that happens because there has been, you know, there's been no um, regular use of chest register, maybe a bit of a fear of using it. Maybe there's been some sort of seed planted that it's not the best place to sing or, or whatever. Um, there is maybe a, a mental block in that it's not healthy or safe to sing there. Um, that's what I find is the biggest one, as opposed to, I don't actually have any chest register. That's really rare. Um, but uh, if you do have trouble accessing it, um, yeah, I normally find it can be a personality trait as well. If someone's quite shy or generally quite quiet, then accessing belt is gonna be harder for you because it's just not a sound that you're used to making. You know, me, Greek Cypriot, it's quite easy. <laughs> <laughs> one of like 12 cousins it was <laughs> growing up belting was like a way of life <laughs> so, <laughs> um yeah so had I actually considered this myself I I, I do tr truly feel I only realized this now because of wicked um prior to going into this I didn't even think about it in this way and I, maybe that's why I had so much trouble um because I didn't approach it in a, in an easy way. I think it's very much a feeling of flow and uh, in the body. It's, it's a whole body connection thing. It's not in the throat. And I, do you know what I mean when I say that? It's kind of weird. It's everything just became very, very tight and tense and squeezed in my throat when I was doing the job, as opposed to appreciating it being something, you know, really natural and flowy and easy. I don't know if that's So true. do you think there are people who, can do that role because I think that role is incredibly challenging vocally. Mm -hmm. um, it was written with the music and and the um, so the need to sort of show off a particular voice. You know, I, I, 
type mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to writing a show that made sense technically for the voice. Yeah. Oh, God, absolutely. And, and I, you know, because you spend so much time in that belted place, it's, and then, as you said, you're constantly yelling and being angry and running around and, um, and it's not, you know, you, you were saying there's not much in the way of speaking. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I just wonder if maybe the, the writing was to do more with, you know, oh, we've got this, uh, you know, some people who can do this and let's, let's, um, utilize them as opposed to thinking actually there's a human behind that voice. yeah it's all about the role all about doing something different I, I mean I I don't know too much history about the writing but it's definitely it's it's so different as a female role to anything out there I don't it, it's it's kind of crazy um what's expected of the performer um, but it is possible there are you know that people that can just sail through that do two three years in that contract and have no problems whatsoever um who knows what that may be I don't know you know as in terms of training throughout my career I never did any classical training I never looked at my head voice I did a bit but I never really looked at it um and I think a lot of so the successful people do have that balance. They've got that flexibility in the top part of their range. I'm not saying they were classically trained or, or did majority legit, but they've got that flexibility. So even when you hear that belt, maybe it's not, it's not just pure chest. It's, you know, let's talk about it being in the mix. It's 80% chest, 20% head. It's, it's got the flexibility in it. Um, and to find that release higher up in the range. Even now when, when my clients, they get auditions come through, a lot of them say strong mix required. You don't have to belt things anymore. I think, you know, who's to say what is belt and what isn't? Is it loud? Yes. Is it powerful? Yes. Does it evoke the right emotion? Yes. Is it true technical belt? Maybe not. Doesn't matter. It, honestly, it doesn't. I don't think it, it, it's what it does to the audience. It's what it evokes in them. Important. Um, and obviously at the same time, if it means that the singer can get through, you know, 52 weeks of the year, eight shows a week, then absolutely, you know, you know, what is the point in screaming chest register up as high as you possibly can, like I did? <laughs> um, cause you know, the only one who's going to feel it is you. And, uh, so yeah, hence why, uh, uh, you know, a, a more of an appreciation for training technique would have been better. <laughs> from my side <laughs> before I started the job. Yeah, so, I mean, the way that I've come to define that strategy, well, belt, mm-hmm. is that some people strategize it and do all this stuff of, you know, um, which I suppose is quite influenced or is Estill, yeah. where they're anchoring, they're using twang, they're letting the larynx come up. Yep. Um and and it sounds to me quite forced. Yeah. And then there are other people who seem to access what you're talking about, that more primal yeah. sound, and it sounds freer and more open um, but still loud. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me like the people who go and strategize tend to be the ones that end up with problems. Yeah, exactly as I did. You know, I, I thought I had to do something in order to create that sound. I thought I had to manipulate. I had to create this thing. Whereas actually, you know, the experience I'm having with clients in the studio now is stop trying so hard, stop doing stuff. And, you know, we're told our whole lives, you know, 
study harder, you'll get a better grade or, you know, go to the gym, you'll lose weight or <laughs> all of those things. It, when it comes to singing, less is more. We have, you know, we, we have a speaking voice, uh, which we use every day. Um, and it knows what it needs to do. And I think any input that we have, any psychological thing where we go, oh, okay, well, I need to breathe this way. I need to do this with my diaphragm. I, <laughs> exactly. Do this with my diaphragm or this with my rib cage, or I need to hold my shoulders down or I need to squeeze or twang or tilt. Um, you know, it's like, what, why, just maybe don't try. Have you tried? So that's a, a, another thing I will say to clients quite a lot is, have you tried not doing that? No, L let's try. Let's Let's see, let's see what happens when you don't do that. How did that feel? Actually really comfortable. Okay, good. And, and the sound? Yeah, actually it sounded quite open. Yeah, because <laughs> when you're applying all that stuff, it's quite pressed. So that's, I'm finding that a lot in the studio, that my job is not to tell people to do stuff, it's to tell people to not do stuff. Yeah. So how do you take people from finding that sort of yell, you know, primal yell sound to then going into making pitches making what what as in getting in a pitch okay so let's say for example we did like the years getting up really high um then taking up probably um arpeggio um the arpeggio scale up maybe up just like a yeah 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 taking up higher and higher and just making sure that um the you know that i can't remember what i want to use um the chest register maintains throughout um you know obviously keeping the body relaxed, um, just keeping an eye on breathing and making sure it's not sort of pulsing and the abdomen's not doing anything over, over the top or, um, marching on the spot can really help in that instance. Um, it's a great distraction. <laughs> um, so taking it into that point. Yeah. Um, and then trying to find that again in the song, but it's not something I feel that it was, is a sustained thing over lines and lines and lines you might get in that strong mixed place as I was talking about maybe it's like 80% chest 20% head something a little bit lighter and the belt comes in as as a real extreme vocal maybe on one particular note or a few words um and finding a release into vibrato right at the end of that just emotively does some amazing things so yeah so who who are the musical theatre singers that you write to? oh god so many I've got two re two favorites <laughs> real big favorites um Male, Ollie Thompson. Um, I love his voice so much. Uh, he um, played um, Drew in Rock of Ages. Um, we worked on that together. Um, I love his tone um, and vocal quality. I've always got a lot of time for Ollie as well. He's a ruddy, nice guy. Um, and then female vocal. Um, I love Louise Dearman's voice. Um, they're both very rich and soulful and so expressive. Um, I find them just, yeah, just wonderful to listen to. So, yeah, check them out. <laughs> so I know things have changed a little bit in the way that you work with clients. Can you talk us through um, how you went from Bast into starting your own studio and then how, how it pro proceeded from there and the changes that you eventually made? The um, standby alpha role was ideal for starting up the coaching on the side. Obviously, I wasn't doing a show a night. Um, so, yeah, I was in the standby room waiting, but then I had a lot of more free time, as it were, to start thinking about what I was going to do once I finished because I knew that alpha would be the last thing. So 
Um, I did the BAST course online with Ian Davidson and then um, over the course of a few weeks and then started very slowly with I think one or two clients on a Friday in the same studio that I'm in now. Um, fortunately, I was living in London at the time and it was only a short walk from the studio. So even if I was just hiring the studio for the whole day and I was teaching one person for free, it, it didn't matter. It was just getting that experience in. Um, and then that one became two or three, which became five, which then meant, okay, I want to open up another day and see what happened. So did that. Um, and then it just slowly started to pick up. Um, I would start, I started taking a lot of um, workshops through voice workshop with Debbie Winter, um, Bast workshops as well. Um, a lot of online podcasts and reading. Um, and, you know, I sat in on other people's singing lessons as well. And um, yeah, and just, I found that it was quite important to start getting my my niche, my sort of kind of client. Um, musical theatre was an obvious choice. So obviously musical theatre clients were starting to come to me in that sense, um, knowing the experience that I'd had. Um, and I would say now, yeah, majority, I'd say 90, 95% of my clients are um, working professionally in musical theatre, which is really, really lovely. Um, but what I am finding now is that the job role in itself is changing slightly. Um, I'm finding that people are coming in and just wanting a little bit of a, a push or a bit more direction in what's happening. Maybe the auditions aren't coming in or, you know, the, there's a bit of a disconnect with their agent or something like that. And um, so we're just taking it back to the beginning and looking at their headshots Um looking at their spotlight, which is sort of like their online CV portal, as it were, where all their castings and their voice reel. Maybe they don't have a voice reel. Maybe they don't have a dance reel. Um, like I've just been through this process with two or three clients, um, starting this again, getting some new headshots done, going over their spotlight, going into the studio with them, um, picking songs suitable for their voice quality and their casting recording a voice reel, putting together dance reels, neatening everything up on that spotlight, and then them signing with a, a really credible musical theatre agent in the industry. And that for me is just the best ever. It's so good because half the struggle is just getting your foot through the door. And if you've got someone of a note, you know, a notable agent behind you that can help you do that, you know, that's just the best success ever. And from that point, you know, landing that position, making sure their repertoire folder is in order. So Again, picking songs across the different styles, classical to legit, to jazz, to contemporary legit, to contemporary musical theatre, to pop rock. Um, a couple of songs each in those genres, ballad and up-tempo, and making sure they are technically sound and making sure that their voices can cope with that change, knowing that they have an audition for something legit on the Monday and they have a poppy audition on the Thursday, something you know, knowing that they feel confident that those songs are just completely ready at the same time working in and around the different voice qualities like belt or maybe something more twangy character, speech quality. Um, yeah. So that's basically my days now, which is fab. Mm. So one of the things that you and I've discussed a, um, a little bit is about pricing and then um, getting your prices up. And I wanted to ask you, how you did that and the kind of feelings around it, you know, what what stopped you in the beginning or what then made you decide to do it. So how have you gone about managing price rises? Um, 
I would say in the beginning, obviously, you're quite worried about in your initial starting price point. You want to make sure that it's fair. Um, you need to feel like you can back up what you're saying. I always hated the feeling like, oh my God, what happened to this? What if I find out I'm a fraud? <laughs> what, if they, what if they think I'm rubbish or I'm not worth it? Or all of these fears go into your head and you can only, you can only try, right? So I started at, at quite a reasonable price point, I thought, for, for a London coach, central London coach, with the experience that I'd had. Um, and then I've actually only had one price rise up until I'm actually changing my... Uh, changing my prices in January from January the 1st which will be the second time but up until then it's been sort of every two to three years um and I just god it's a really hard question so what was stopping you initially having the confidence worried that I couldn't back up what I was saying but I feel like I can I feel like you know the work that I'm doing with people gets results um you know, I think you'll always know they, they come back. If the people believe, you know, if people are getting results, they'll come to you again, if, you know, and have faith in your ability, have faith in what you're offering as a coach. Um, since letting clients know that my prices were going up in January, yes, of course, I was terrified. Um, having said that, I'd say, I have no, I haven't had, had anyone say that they're leaving or I'm retaining all of my regular clients. And actually my inquiries have gone up as weird as that sounds, I would say I'm probably getting three, four new client inquiries a week at the moment off the back of that. But my diary is 90% full. So I, I probably, I keep regular clients in as much as I can, but then having four or five slots free for last minute bookings like that, um, it's always nice to obviously mix up my week as well. So do you market yourself right now? How do, how do people know about you? Um, I actually market myself mostly not through in the beginning I started off with Google ads which is quite an investment but absolutely worth it um I think it was like five or six pounds a day I was using Google ads um you know and if you get one client you know you've made that back in I don't know what it was maybe it's like a it's like a hundred to a hundred pounds a month and you've made that back in the in the first few lessons so if you can retain them then I you know I had to kind of get over that really quickly thinking oh my god I'm spending loads of money but actually it was working fine mm. probably bringing in a couple of clients a month but I found the biggest help for me um has been a group on Facebook um which has been it's actually a community of dancers singers actors trapeze artists photographers anybody basically who works in the performing industry um and it's been to uh, offer my services on there. Um, I've done quite a few discounted rates for initially for a first lesson and people have come back off the back of that first lesson. Um, but at the moment now, it's actually mostly word of mouth, which is, which is really lovely. So can you tell me the strategy used for raising your price? So what was the kind of step-by-step -step thing that you did once you decided to do it? Um, okay, making the decision, obviously informing everybody. Um, how do you go? What What did you say to people? Um, just to let you know, <laughs> I would like to let you know that this is going to be happening. And it would always be, I would say, give them enough time to know. So I would say between three to six months in the future that it was going to happen. Yeah. So can you tell me what the strategy was, um, how you went about step by step raising your prices? Of course. Um, it began, uh, this most recent price increase, what I've done 
is um, I told all my current regular clients about three, four months ago that it was going to be happening in January. So that gave them enough time to obviously know about it um, and decide what they wanted to do after January. I wanted to give them enough notice. Um, and uh, But actually it went up on my website for brand new clients straight away. Right. Um, so I changed the prices on that. And then, so I have cancellation lists. If a cancellation list goes out to new clients, it will have the link to the new price. If a cancellation list goes out to my old clients, it will have my old price. But that will obviously, the the cancellation list will combine when it comes to January. Yeah, so you decided to raise your price for everybody. Yes, January for everybody. I just gave made sure I gave all the regular clients enough notice mm. um, to decide if it was something they wanted to continue. And very fortunately, they they do want to stay, so that's good. Mm. And I've, I've also said to people, you know, the the techniques and the things that we're doing, I'd like to think they're efficient enough. You don't need a lesson a week. I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm actually, <laughs> I always put it across, I'm actually saving you money. If you're coming every week, you don't need to. If you put in the practice at home, if you're applying the techniques regularly, you do not need to come every week. Um, you know, once every week, it's more than enough, you know, and it takes, you know, 15, 20 minutes a day, if that, every other day, just to access something new, something different and get the new feelings into your body because, you know, I'd much rather that than they do one, you know, a lesson a week um, at my old price and they're only practicing once a week. Do you know what mm. I mean? You know, I just feel like if you can be efficient with the time and money you're spending, um, you know, it's better for you and it's better for me. So, yeah. Do you teach um, beginners? Um, I have done I, in the past, definitely, definitely in the beginning a lot because that was actually where I learned the most. Um, teaching beginners and working with, with beginners was where I learned a lot about my teaching. I'd actually say now, no, not so much. Um, I have a couple of very young clients, but they are working professionally. Um, but I would now I tend to not get those sort of inquiries. If I get an inquiry through for a child who's maybe seven or eight, I'll tend to pass it on. Um, if I get an inquiry from a, an, for an adult, it depends on the thing, you know, if I've got the space, I remember, you know, a complete beginner, a gentleman came to me last year who wanted to record a song for his first wedding dance as a surprise for his wife, who actually turns out at the time, she didn't even realise it was him singing about a quarter of the way through the song. So that's success for me. Um, but that was a really, really lovely experience. And so, yeah, I would absolutely work with, with someone who's got a goal and who wants to achieve something different um and is not afraid to challenge themselves absolutely um i think working from absolute scratch um no i don't tend to get those inquiries through anymore like at the moment i'm working with a beginner as well but she wants to audition she wants to get into college into musical theater college so i think as long as there's an idea of the goal and they can commit to the practice then that's the most important thing for me mm. as a coach so talking about getting into college, what are the sort of things that you find um, you commonly need to work on with people who are prepare, preparing for auditions and what what advice would you give other teachers to be focusing on? The song choices, as much as it sounds like it's just a song and, you know, it's the voice quality that's important, the song choices are really, really important. It's um, not just about showing off the dynamic in terms of their casting, it has to show off, you know, potentially a role that they might be able to play in the future. So really getting to know your musical theatre songs is important. I've had an email through from a girl who wants to audition after Christmas. And she said that, you know, she's she's a classical singer, 
Um, and she's realized that she needs to have more of a contemporary sound, needs to be accessing more of a contemporary sound. So yes, she's absolutely right. And then she told me the song that she's been working on is Memory from Cats. <laughs> so two problems with that, one being, well, it's more of a legit song. So you're gonna have difficulty finding more of a contemporary sound in something like that. So maybe you could probably find something a little bit more of a transitional in terms of helping her access that. And two, it's the, probably one of the most well-known songs in musical theatre. It's like On My Own in Les Mis. And that would be my second point. Do not pick anything that is in the West End, on tour currently, um, or coming into town uh, or onto the stage within the next couple of years. Those songs will be done to death. How do you then source songs that are appropriate? Difficult one. I started to make a repertoire list myself um, when I first started teaching. So I have a list of an just hundreds and hundreds of songs that might be suitable. I need to kind of categorize them and put them into different sections, but um, looking up, okay, needing a legit song, looking at all musicals from that time period, looking at the composers and the writers, looking at other shows, maybe that won't (laughs) sound bad, maybe not as successful, but maybe not as well known going into those song lists. um, I always search Wikipedia and they always have all the lists of songs um, and looking at the songs, just looking at songs you don't know, you can get in a stuck in a vortex on YouTube of songs if you just keep clicking, keep clicking. Um, I know, uh, I, I believe musical theatre colleges prefer you to sing a song from a musical than a standalone artist. So there's a lot of composers out there at the moment, like um, Scott Allen, Kerrigan and Laura Milk. They are all they all write beautiful beautiful material that may not be suitable for an audition situation so it's worth checking checking that out um but yeah there are actually on a lot of online sources there's um uh if you type in um like a google search for example there are websites where you can type in the kind of song that you want and they will throw up some suggestions um I don't know, maybe there's something in there for me. Maybe I can need to <laughs> need to create at some point. Um, but, uh, and ask, ask people as well. Ask other coaches. Um, you know, the BAS has such a big support network. Um, so yeah, get asking as well. Yeah, so what else? So you're working on uh, finding the right repertoire. What else do you work on when you're preparing someone for college audition? More often than not, the college will require two casting contrasting songs, so a legit and a contemporary. So making sure they are really different, showing off that that showing off what the singer has to offer in terms of diversity and style difference. Um, you know, that contemporary sound, like I said at the very beginning, speech level, um, you'll want to show off as much range as possible. So you probably will have to show off a belt in that. Um, you know, and if you can belt to a D, don't show off a belt to a B. You know, you have to show them what you can do. It's all very well being written down, but if you can't prove it, then, you know. So um, making sure that those songs are as secure as possible. And then again, with the legit, something more legato, more free. Um, uh, I can't remember who said this. Someone once said to me, or I once heard in a workshop, classical singing and legit singing is all about the music. So it's all about the yeah it's all about the music and contemporary musical theatre is all about the words which I think is really really interesting I love that I can't remember who said it that's terrible but someone really great said it (laughs) (laughs) um which I thought is so true um the legit the legit song you know it's much more specific in terms of its notes and its timing and rhythm um and they'll definitely want to hear more of a heady sound 
but that's connected and rich, you know, that's talking about that efficient cord closure at the bottom, but making sure it's flexible, um, lower larynx, more vibrato, showing off the top part of your range. Is there any specific advice that you think a teacher can give their student when they're about to sort of get in, go into the audition? Be yourself. Oh, that sounds so cliche, but, you know, they don't want a polished performer. They don't want the best. They want to see potential and they want to, they just want to see someone who's excited and ready to work and eager to learn. Um, you know, college, the college years, some colleges only only have a course that's a year long. Some have a course that's three, three years long, but ultimately that's not a long time to perfect someone as an artist. So if they can just see in the audition that you're ready to learn and take on as much as possible, um, and show potential, you know, knowing your casting is really important. You know, like I would never go in and sing something from a show. I would never be casting because it's just, it's just totally unrealistic. They need to be able to see it in you. If they can see, oh yeah, I could really see her doing X, Y, Z. It's much more helpful for them. Um, and just being nice to everybody. That's really important. You don't know who's got to stay on the day. Even the person that's taking your name. Oh yeah, she was really horrible when, you know, when she did this X, Y, Z. You don't know who they're going to speak to. So just being really positive. Obviously preparation is key. Making sure your sheet music is printed out. Um, something actually I've started to suggest to clients is that they don't just print it on regular A4 paper, but something slightly thicker. So it stands up better on the piano. That it's together that your cuts in the music are prepared and clearly marked they'll want to have the whole song there but they'll also probably want to hear or see that you've got a 32 bar cut and a 16 bar cut so depending on how busy they are on the day they might not even hear all of it so your best 16 bars maybe that's the bit that shows off the belt towards the end who knows it doesn't it could be the beginning part um, of a legit song who who knows but making sure that your sheet music is really clearly marked um yeah and have a good breakfast. <laughs> so my final question to you, Nat, is what's been game-changing for you of recent in either your teaching or your business practice or your singing? Um, good question. I would say actually in most recent months, um, within the last six months, I sort of I've, almost weirdly kind of let go of the lot of the let go of a lot of things that I initially thought. Um, obviously I think we get on a conveyor belt. Sometimes we teach and get really excited about a particular thing and we get lots of results from it. And then actually maybe like 12 months down the line go, do you know what? Actually, I, I'm not feeling that anymore. That doesn't make sense because it affects X, Y, Z, or, you know, I've read this from this person or this person said this and I tried it out and it worked better. So just, I think I'm more open-minded now than ever, um, about just trying to learn from others or, just my approach and making it all about the client. What do you feel? What do you experience? It's not up to me to tell them to feel something because it might feel completely different for someone to, as it feels for somebody else. So um, that's always something actually I've tried to maintain. Um, you know, I don't want to prescribe anyone, uh, you know, I don't want to use a word like tilt or twang, but you know, there's so many people that aren't sure what that means. So if, if I say something like that, I want them to know, I would want them to, feel comfortable with what they were doing but so you know just not getting bogged down with actually I, so I do very little exercises anymore which sounds bizarre as a singing teacher but I I don't know if you can make someone a stronger singer 
you know, as in literally build the muscle. I think it's all about repetition and getting in the right spot. Um, it's obviously, of course I do exercises, but they're not the full sole focus of my lessons anymore. Part of that might be to do with your type of client. Yes, true. Who've had it so extreme that is, you know, it's been so extreme for them to be like that. I'm working a lot more holistically than I ever thought I would. A lot more freedom in the body, a lot more to do with breath and um, and it being a, a whole body experience, as it were. That sounds really crazy, but as opposed to just, I need to sing through this line. So, you know, prescribing things, um, just referring back to feeling all the time. How does that feel for you? Does it feel good? No. Okay, well, let's try this. Does that feel better? Good. Let's do that one then. Um, and more often than not, the more open feeling, the more relaxed the client is, the more they're trying to not do anything. <laughs> Even trying to not doing something is trying. <laughs> so just, just letting go of all feeling will usually more often than not result in an open, freer sound, which is much more, you know, more inviting and warming to listen to for the audience. Well, that's been fantastic to talk to you, Nat. It's always good catching up anyway. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, you're most welcome. Um maybe we'll talk about doing some sort of workshop next year that would be great i would love to and looking forward to seeing how things evolve in 2020 thank you lynn take care lovely you too bye, bye.